Welcome to Startup Happy Hour, sponsored by Content Allies. Grab a drink and join us to hear fun and inspirational stories from startup founders and visionaries who are making a positive impact in our communities and learn how you too can turn your new and exciting ideas into reality. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Startup Happy Hour. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm here today with Jim Coleman. Jim is the co-founder at XFusion, which provides customer support for SaaS companies. Hey, Jim, how's it going? I'm good, Diana. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Great. So to start off, why don't you just tell people a little bit more about what XFusion is all about? Sure. Yeah, it's been kind of a, a long and windy road to get to, to where we're at, but we provide customer support and customer success to SaaS businesses and also just to startups in general. So the idea is that we, we really work to, to free founders from uh, the time that they spend in support and kind of freed them up to, to operate in the highest and best use of their time. So we provide dedicated full-time customer support or customer success reps. Um, we hire both nearshore and, and overseas as well. And we also have layers of, of management and, and oversight. So we, we provide not only customer support and success, but also uh, back office tasks. Uh, and then we have team leaders assigned to, to each client account. And then we also have um, an extra uh, resource on each account just to make sure that there's coverage in the event that the primary agent is um, you know, off work or sick or something like that. Gotcha. So just because customer support is so broad and then, you know, SaaS companies is such a broad category as well. Can you give a, a couple of examples of uh, like customers that you serve and what types of customer support you can help them with? Yeah, of course. We, we really kicked off to kind of in an effort to scratch our own itch. And my, my co-founder, David, he's a former Uber, a senior developer at Uber, and he and I both own SaaS businesses. So we had, we had worked with other outsourced companies in the past and just were kind of underwhelmed with the results. Um, they have a, many of them use a, a per response model where one, one full-time resource is shared across multiple accounts. And that was just really difficult. So we, we built out an internal team um, ourselves and, and kind of vetted that process. And, and then once we were satisfied with the results, we, we took that external and we've been growing the business since June, uh, officially since June. So we're, we're pleased with where we're at. Um, in terms of what did you ask me customers, so like the types of queries that we handle? Yeah. Yeah. Just like get, give some examples of, you know, here's a business, here's like a SaaS sure. company or a startup that we help. And this is what we do for them type of thing. Yeah, you bet. So our most recent, um, client is a, a WordPress hosting provider. So we actually work with them to answer their customer support tickets. That's via, via live chat and also via email. We do offer phone support just, they don't, they don't have that, um, that product. And we also offer back office um, related tasks. So we, we handle migrations for them and some other like billing responsibilities. Uh, we have another <clears throat> client called Designer and we work with them just answering answering a ton of chat tickets. So they have a live chat. So um, we started off like in a more technical, providing more technical service. In fact, at this point, something like 90% of our staff have computer science degrees. So we do tier one, tier two support. But uh, like I said, we're, we're kind of branching off into the, the less technical support arena as well, you know, so e-commerce and just different startup brands. So basically if, if a, if a business has a need for support or success, we can, we can support them. Gotcha. And I think I read somewhere that you work uh, with Shopify. So does that mean like for, from an e-commerce standpoint, if I go onto a site and have some checkout problems or something like that, that's the customer support that you provide there? 
Yeah. So primarily we've been working with Shopify app owners and that was kind of the, the genesis of the business. So David's business is called Shopstorm, his his SaaS. Mine is called GrooveJar and they're both on the Shopify app store. Uh, GrooveJar is also non-Shopify, but that was the area that we were just really familiar with. And so we started off supporting Shopify owners. In fact, like our, our first you know marketing method was like a an embarrassingly long and poor cold email that we sent out to something like 4,000 Shopify app owners. And that's how we generate our, our initial um, our initial clients. So in that case, it's, we're, we're supporting uh, customer inquiries that come in to those Shopify app owners. So basically um, Shopify merchants, so the store owners are trying to use the app for different purposes. And if they have an issue or need help setting it up, then they would, would contact us and we would help them with that process. Got it. And so- so I know the company isn't super new. You guys are just under about a year and a half. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, from company, right? Yeah. From when we officially sort of launched and uh, it's kind of started working on things. Yeah. So we're customer facing uh, about six, six months now, but we kind of kicked off officially in, in, I guess, uh, roughly mid of mid 2019. Okay. So how has that process been, you know, starting to get customers post pandemic, like we had already entered. I mean, I guess the good thing (laughs) about your business is it's in the good thing about tech in general is that it seems to be an industry that has survived and sometimes thrived in the era of COVID-19. But what was that experience like trying to grow a business, you know, right at the start of the pandemic? Gosh, you know, that was hard. Like my wife is, is quite risk averse. Uh, and I've got, I've got five kids and, and I, I left a full-time job. So um, in my, like my last day at work officially, cause we, we kind of, we started Xfusion before I, I fully left my job, but then I left in at the very end of May. It's like right in the heat of COVID and it was certainly a risk, but you know, it, it's, it's really played out well. And I feel, I feel very fortunate because I know a lot of people, uh, a lot of business owners have struggled with COVID and I feel so tender for them. But in our case, we've been pretty fortunate because so many, so many companies have, you know, they were forced to go remote and, and companies that have previously uh, been a proponent of, of having an in-office staff are now entertaining the idea of, <clears throat> of going remote and of, of hiring remote as well. And that of course introduces the idea of working with an outsourced company and maybe someone that was previously uh, concerned about doing that is, is willing to give it a try. And also like Shopify has just exploded. I think a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs that um, that maybe laid off for the re- from the regular job and and had maybe took advantage of the the government stipend for a while or had some cash saved up they, they kicked off Shopify stores so that's called Shopify to just explode so we've been uh, we really we really you know benefited from from that I guess shift got it would you say that that sort of pushed you guys more towards the direction of Shopify or was was Shopify something that you would have was that a route that you would have gone regardless of the pandemic yeah. you think <laughs> no i think it was just good fortune yeah it was just it was just good fortune because like that was already the the, the world that we were familiar with I actually left so my my previous full-time role i i worked full-time in a um, private equity fund managing Shopify assets. So Shopify apps and other like SaaS assets. So I was already very familiar with that space. I thought, you know, this would be a a good jumping off point for us, but it was just really good fortune that, that Shopify took up, took off at the same time that we were launching Xfusion. For sure. And so when you guys first launched or when you first went customer facing about six months ago, what were some of your primary strategies for getting your, your first few customers? Gosh, you know, that has been such a work in progress. And, and it's something that Dave and I are focusing just every day on is, I like to say, and I don't even know if this is a, a, 
uh, something that's, that's frequently said, but I like to throw spaghetti against the fridge and just see what sticks, right? Like, and just experiment with different things. It's interesting. We, we've had so many iterations and, and we keep experimenting. And, and so far, what's been the most successful is just cold email outreach. So, so finding a list of, of um, you know, qualified leads that, that are sort of within our wheelhouse and then just messaging them directly. And, you know, I, I think our email was okay. I think it was way too long, but really it's, it's just been a matter of timings. Like we're getting in front of the right people at the right time. And there's a need for our service. Um, and I, th- I mean, we have a lot of experience in the space and I think that helps. And if we can get them, um, you know, to give us the time to, to have a conversation, we can make an, a connection and just kind of share, um, share with them our experience and kind of what we bring to the table and learn a lot more about their business. But, you know, like we've, we've also experimented with several other things, um, working with an SDR agency to do sort of some cold, cold email outreach, as well as LinkedIn and calls, um, that hasn't been fruitful as of yet, um, this is something that, that we're continuing to pursue. We're actually going to be launching an experiment doing some cold calling, which I'm honestly scared to death of. But I, I think that like, I, I think if the timing is good into the right list and if, if you approach it in the right way, I think it can be really fruitful. Um, but yeah, so far it's just, it's just been the, the cold, cold emails. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I, so funny. One of my first jobs was back in college. I worked at our university call center and cold called alumni of the university asking for money. So I I feel like obviously that's, you know, not most people's dream job, but I feel like it definitely taught me some skills, built some character, at least made me, you know, not afraid of rejection at least because that it was, it was just rejection after rejection. Yeah. I'm curious to try it. I I think that it's a really smart thing to do for us to sharpen our skills. And I'm not like, I'm not a sales guy, right? Like that's not, not my background, but I love people and I I love having conversations and meeting people. So I'm looking at it from that perspective. Uh, And I'm happy to just talk for people, talk to people for hours without any sort of gain, right? Like I'm not just looking to make a sale, but just to make connections. Um, And one of the things that we've, we've observed that seems to be working well for a couple of people we've seen doing cold calling is like starting out with empathy, empathy. So like the, the, the kind of the, I guess the pitch that I've heard people use effectively is something like, you know, Hey, Diana, I, I, I know I'm an interruption, but would you mind giving me 27 seconds to, to, to let me share why I'm calling? So, you know, you're, you're starting with the fact that you're empathizing that, Hey, like I'm interrupting your day. I get that, but I have something of, of I, that I think you'll find a value to share. Would you mind if I share that? Um, and like, also I, this is just a hypothesis, but I, I think that, calling as a, a founder or co-founder will be impactful as compared to just hiring somebody to, to call on our behalf. I think that most other founders and, and entrepreneurs would respect that. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see how it goes. I'm definitely a little afraid to, to do that, but I think it could be fruitful. Yeah. I mean, I, if nothing else, if nothing else, it'll, it, it builds character. Like I think cold calling builds <laughs> for character sure. for sure. But uh, one thing I am curious about, and I, I think you sort of alluded to this already with the whole empathy thing, but I get the sense that one thing that sets you guys apart from your competitors is sort of that human component of it. And I already get the sense yeah. from talking to you and just from, you know, uh, stalking you online a little bit that that is a big part of what Xfusion is all what you're all about, and thus what Xfusion is all about is that human component and um, that empathy. And so, yeah. talk a little bit more about what it is that makes Xfusion unique and special because customer service isn't a new concept, it's been around for right. ages. Um, so, you know, like now that in 20, you waited until 2019 to start your own customer support business. Why? Why now? Why Xfusion? What sets you guys apart? 
our, our credo is relationships over revenue. And I know that's kind of a cliche tagline, but I, it's something that we really are passionate about and really believe in. And, and I see, I don't know, like I, I don't, maybe this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I don't separate my, my personal life and my work life very much at all. And like, so at home, one of the things I'm working on with my wife and kiddos, is just like listening well and, and being encouraging and sharing empathy or like being empathetic. And it's the same process at work. Like we, we just, David and I love our team or we're at something like uh, just, just right around 20 people now, full-time, full-time on our staff. And um, we, we pay better than average and, and like considerably better than average, have better benefits than average. And like our objective is to just really care about people. So we had a, a leadership call the other day and we've got several people on our leadership team. It's just so fun to connect with them. And they're predominantly in the Philippines and in the Nairobi, Kenya, like our two primary locations. And I love learning about them and their culture. And so like the idea is that we're, we're wanting to create an environment where they, they love working and where they love, love to, to be and they're thriving in their career. And the idea is that they'll stay, stick around and, and be with us a long, a long time. So like, while we understand that the lifeblood of every business is, is revenue, like we have to have that to survive, it's not really our number one pursuit. We think of revenue as coming by way of having excellent relationships. Like if we focus on relationships, then revenue follows that. And I don't mean like in a salesy sort of way, but like in a real genuine way um, where we just we just care about people and we want to make a connection with them and, and see how we can be genuinely helpful to them with our business. So I, I think that's, that's one thing that sets us apart. And um, certainly there are a lot of other companies in the world that do that, but I just think it's a, it's a much better way to, to do business and just to live life in general. Yeah, for sure. It's it almost feels like you guys are sort of rewriting the chicken or egg narrative around sales where most people think, oh, you got to, you know, you got to make revenue like that's number one. You got to bring in the money and then you can invest in these relationships. But you're kind of saying it's, you know, maybe the reverse. You by building these relationships that you're automatically going to be bringing in revenue. Um, I I love that philosophy. So take me back to your past. I know this isn't your first foray into entrepreneurship. This isn't your first time as a founder. You've you've done this before more than once. You've gotten acquired. Tell, just take us back to all of your previous ventures and sort of what <laughs> what got you here. Oh man, it's been a, it's been a long road. Uh, my, I won't give you like the extreme long version, but my my first I guess foray into the business world was in lawn care when I was eighteen. You know, I, I had had my own lawn care business, and uh, that gave me a little taste. And then, uh, long story short, I, I got married and and. My, my wife is 12 years older than I am. So I right away had two, two stepkids. Um, so I was 22 years old with two stepkids and like pretty soon I just needed to get a real job, right? Because I wasn't just, I wasn't cutting it with the lawn care. Um, no pun intended. Uh, so like I, I, I got a real job and kind of worked my way up. I, I got into law enforcement and was a, a sex crimes to, sex crimes against children detective for five years. So I worked uh, in a DA's office uh, as well as a, a PD as a detective for that time period. And that was like really rich and rewarding, but also really hard, like just really hard emotionally. Um, and that's like a whole nother conversation, but that's like one of the big whys behind what we're doing at Xfusion is to, to build revenue to the point where we can do more in the span of like nonprofits. That's something I would love to get back into is, is supporting kiddos in that capacity, but like from a, from a nonprofit angle versus from the law enforcement perspective, because I think we can affect change on a larger scale. So uh, the point is, is to, to live humbly and continue to grow our revenue so we can put more and more cash towards, you know, a nonprofit initiative like that. So, um, but yeah, so that, so that's, I spent five years doing that and then, and then jumped off into local service businesses. So that's kind of where I got my start. We had a, a company called Gigaloopsy and another called Best Santas, where we sent out like real bearded Santa Claus entertainers. Um, and that was fun. And I, uh, 
that then I got into like the e-commerce space and had a subscription box company that I, I co-owned called Wet Shave Club. Uh, and then I also ended up co-owning a, a SaaS called Groove Jar. And that's the one that, uh, you know, went forward with that for about a year and a half. And then I sold that company to the to a brokerage. And they were using it to start the, their private equity and kind of investment wing of their business. And they hired me to work in that business. And then I ended up working for them full-time leading other SaaS assets as well. And then what's kind of funny is that David, my, my current co-founder and really, really good friend, uh, he actually bought GrooveJar and ShopStorm together. And then that's how I met him. And I facilitated the, the transfer process and sale process and then started uh, working alongside him, kind of doing some consulting, building out support teams. Uh, and then as part of a, an equity agreement for Xfusion, uh, David conveyed GrooveJar back to me. So like that's the that that's the short version, but it's it's pretty crazy what the I don't know what the journey's been like. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. So one thing that we haven't really gotten to talk about at all on the podcast is businesses getting acquired. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I'd I'd be curious to hear more about that. Like, what was the whole process like? Did you know from the time you started your business that you wanted to get acquired eventually? And then how does a business go through the process of getting acquired by another business? Yeah. It's funny, I, I had quite a bit of experience in that area, but I, I'm not necessarily, I feel like I'm much more of a fan of of slow and steady and building a business over a long period of time. It just so happened that I was in a situation in my life where it made sense for, for us to sell those businesses. And specifically with GrooveJar, when we sold it, um, the the developer that I was partnered with, excuse me, he got a full-time job and he just really wanted to sell it. And I didn't have the technical skills to continue running it. Um, so it just made sense for us to sell it. And ironically, Marcelo, my, my previous business partner for GrooveJar, is now one of our clients at Xfusion because he went and built another another company. So that was kind of a, a funny turn of events. But um, no, like, I, I I think that it just depends on what what the 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 founder's goal is, right? Like there's especially in the world of SaaS, like you can earn a, a heck of a good multiple, um, like even at this point, four times annual SDE, and SDE is seller's discretionary earnings. So basically, if if you're profiting, not including the owner's salary, if you're profiting, you know, $100,000 a year, you could easily sell that business for $400,000. Um, so the it, it's it's very, very, I guess, fruitful for some entrepreneurs to sell and, and to, I guess, go on to different things. Um, but I, I'm happy to talk about any of that. I, it's, my, my role was to um, to basically do the due, due diligence for the assets that we were going to purchase. So we basically go in and look underneath the hood and uh, see how everything w- looked and how everything was was being ran, and then we handled all of the, um, I guess, the negotiation phase, uh, getting getting a, a fair price on on the deal, and then also the due diligence phase where we're really going with a fine tooth comb and making sure that everything is as as it you know, was reported to be, uh, and then we would go in and sort of make adjustments to the business and and run it. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you if you want to dive into that a bit more, I'd, I'd be happy to if you want to go that direction. Yeah, I'd love for you to dive into a, a, a little bit. Uh, first of all, from the angle of, you know, you, you sort of mentioned your situation and why you sold that business. But if you were to give other entrepreneurs advice on whether to sell or whether to keep working on it, like what are some factors that entrepreneurs should should consider when making this decision? That's, that's really tough. It's, it's so individualistic, but I think by way of guiding principles, it's wise to, to be able to look into the future. So I'll give you an example. Like in so Shopify as a platform, they're increasing the the number of um, like integrated tools and options within their platform. And on occasion, now they don't like to do this because it kind of cannibalizes their own business. But on occasion, they will integrate or build in a, a tool within their 
their platform that makes an app an app obsolete or no longer necessary. So I think especially for businesses that um, rely on another larger business to be successful, uh, i.e. an app on Shopify, I think it's really important to, to forecast what the future looks like. And I guess it just comes down to the stability of that business and where you think that's going. You know, like obviously Blockbuster would have been better off to sell you know, before going out of business and kind of succumbing to Netflix. Like I know we can't, we don't, we, we don't have an ability to see the future, but I think that some businesses are higher risk than others. And also another, another thing I've seen play out for, for a number of, of founders is that they just want to get to a place where they can have an exit. I mean, if you exit for, gosh, you know, somewhere in the like 700,000 a million dollar range, depending on where you're at in the U S that's often enough to pay off all of your debt, maybe student debt or, you know, any sort of, um, you know, personal debt, as well as pay cash for a house, right? It's like, there's, there's people that, that, that really enjoy cashing out and getting to a place where they have absolutely no expenses. And that opens them up to take incredible risks. Um, so I've seen that, that really be effective as well. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, no, that's, I, that's all really good information. Um, I, and I think, you know, it probably is, tough to give advice across the board here just because each situation is so unique. Sure. Uh, I think another part of the acquisition process that I'd be curious to hear about is when you do make the decision to sell to another company and you start going through that process and the negotiations, what are, I guess, some important factors that you want to consider in that negotiation mm-hmm. process? So I'm thinking, you know, like how, like how is the business going to operate moving forward after we're acquired? Like, are you the founder still going to be involved in it? To what capacity are you going to be running it? Are they going to be running it? Like, what are some of those big important things that that founders should think about? Sure. Um, I think just one more comment on on the previous topic we were talking about is I I think a good litmus test on whether or not you should sell is where do you see the business in four years, right? Because like, if you get a a four-year multiple, on the business, basically 48x times, you know, 48 month multiple or four, four year multiple, where do you see the business in four years? If it's, if it's likely to be higher or more successful, higher revenue than it currently does, and you're probably better off to just keep it. If you feel like there's a high risk that it won't, you're probably better off to sell it. And then another thing is, that's important to speak to is like preparing the business for sale. So if that's a route that you want to go down, it's really important to start that process. And we, we've come across so many so many people that have just, I guess, more money than they can can effectively spend, but they don't have the operational expertise. So it's really, really important to make sure that the founder starts bringing people into the business to run the business. And the, the idea is to get themselves in a place where they're spending five to 10 hours a week um, actually running the business because they have a, a team in place that makes it very attractive to kind of a more passive investor buyer. And it opens up the market and allows allows the founder to, I guess, market to a lot more people. Um, as far as the transaction, like some people choose to, to just be uh, independent. So they might sell to like a private equity fund or something like that, kind of a private sell. And then some people choose to go through a broker. Most brokers are going to charge, uh, say, 15% of the sale price if the business is under a million dollars in value or 10% if it's above the million dollar mark. But they really facilitate the process from A to Z. So it's a pretty large amount to pay. But if someone doesn't have experience with the process, I think it can be worthwhile. Um you know, de- depending on the business, depending on the number of offers, et cetera. Um, but yeah, and then and then as far as the structure goes, gosh, there's so many different options that are that are available. I think generally we see like businesses that are valued in like the half a million to 
even up to the $5 million level, it's quite quite normal for them to have all cash offers. And normally the, the, the way that works is they'll get a, a cash offer, but it has, um, you know, may, maybe like 10% of that will be held uh, in escrow for one to three months pending training. And we find that the, you know, founders that are willing to stay on for a while, that gives peace of mind and security to the buyer. If you say something like, all right, I'll, I'll stay on for three months, post-acquisition um, in kind of a graduated number of hours. So in other words, the first month might be might be 50 hours a month, the next one might be 25, and then maybe 10 hours for the third month. Um, so that that's workable. On the larger side, we've seen earnout deals where basically the, uh, the, the buyer will want some security of, of future growth. So they'll say like, gosh, I'm paying you a really attractive multiple. And the reason I'm paying that is because I feel like the business is gonna continue to, to grow. But if it doesn't, I want to kind of hedge our bets. So basically they'll pay, and like on a $5 million deal, maybe they'll pay $4 million cash and then a $1 million earnout. And the idea is that if the business hits certain revenue benchmarks, then other like graduated amounts of money are released. So, but the point is like you, you can, you can really structure the deal in any way possible, but, but we found it with, with SaaS businesses in particular at valuations of like 500,000 to 5 million, uh, it, it's really, even with COVID, it, it's really a, a seller's market, you know, so they're kind of able to to cherry pick the best deal. Um, you know, obviously that shifts back and forth, but right now it's, it's really an advantageous market to sellers. For sure. Do you see yourself selling Xfusion in the future or do you see yourself ever being on the opposite side of that and, and buying a, another company that could help you grow Xfusion? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, Another way of looking at this, and I think about this a lot, there, there was one particular company that we sold when I was at my, my, my employer at the broker. Um, and the, the guy was selling it. It was a content business and he was selling it for 1.5 million. He had been just very fortunate and done really, really well. And he wanted to sell the business to have the cash to put together, to put together a team to build out more and more content sites. But, but I think we, we tend to underestimate good fortune like certainly like there's value in working hard. There's value in having skills that, that you bring to the table. But honestly, like there's just a lot of value in, in good fortune. And I think that if, if we undervalue that, we can easily have the assumption that just because we built something successful one time, we know the magic sauce to do it again and again and again. And I just don't think by and large, that's true. I think we have an accumulation of skills and that's certainly helpful, but I'm of the attitudes like, Hey, what we're doing at Xfusion is really working. And I get a lot of joy from the business. So I'm, I'm not of the mindset that we want to sell ever, uh, notwithstanding some sort of a, a family emergency or medical situation or whatever. Like there's always reasons, but you know, it, it's just, but it's more, it's more than just the money for me. Like it's, it's the value in having our team and those connections and, um, you know, serving our clients the way we do. And, and um, I don't know, I'm just, you know, we're still early with Xfusion, but I, I just, I don't ever want to be at the place where I assume that just because we've had success at one point means that we'll automatically have success in the future. For sure. Yeah. I definitely think there's a big luck component that goes into it. And I don't know if that's something that people like to hear, you know, because <laughs> it's not. not very, not very reliable of a thing. Yeah. Oh, you just got to get lucky, but no time. I mean, timing is everything a lot of times yeah. and, and you have to sort of get lucky with that. Um, <clears throat> yeah. 
You know, one other thing on that, Diana, I, I went to a conference called LTV Conference in, in Manhattan in 2019. And it's just a, it's a, a SaaS conference. And, and there was a speaker there named David Hauser. Uh, I'm sure most of your listeners have probably heard of him. He's the guy that, that started and then sold Grasshopper. And he exited for $170 million in 2015. So, I mean, he had an incredible success. And it was interesting to hear him talk because he, he was basically, you know, effectively sharing how he did that. And he was saying like, you know, basically what we did, he said, is we found a marketing mechanism that, that worked. In other words, we could put $1 in and get $2 out over and over again. And we experimented with so many different things until we did that. But, but the thing is, and, and I guess in hindsight, he realized that just because that worked for him at that time doesn't mean it will work for, for you know, us at this time, you know, for me or for you or, or for the listeners at this time. It's just things change. And I think one of the things I've learned, like I used to be in a place where I would just consume massive amounts of material. Like I would read books at 1.5 speed and listen to like a zillion podcasts. And I, I feel like I got value from that, but at some point it was causing this like analysis paralysis and I just wasn't moving forward. And, and when he said that, it, it just, it clicked for me because I thought, you know, like I, I appreciate the lessons that I've learned and I've learned a lot of things that I want to try, but I can't rely on those things. It's time to just make decisions, experiment, and, and see what sticks. And that's where we're at. It's like, you know, we, we've researched and know that other agencies are effective by doing X, Y, Z, but, you know, times change and, and, and systems change. So um, I think it's unwise to think we can find a magic recipe and then just implement that in our business and we're going to be successful just like somebody else. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I think it's becoming more and more of a, a, an important reminder for people as technology is shifting faster and faster. I mean, how quickly do algorithms change online? You know, if you're running Google ads, if you're relying on that, those ads to bring in all of your, your revenue, I mean, Mm -hmm. those algorithms are changing on a, not even, I can't even say an annual basis because it's faster than that. So how do you really daily even. So, you know, how do you take advice from somebody that succeeded back in 2015 five years ago, five, six years ago and apply yeah. today. It's a completely different world. Um, but, but so yeah. What doesn't, like what, what doesn't change, I think is, is principles. Like the, the way we, we treat each other, that human connection, like that's always been the same, right? Like the means have changed, the medium has changed, but the way we interact with each other as humans, the way we treat each other as humans and like the re- relational component, you know, it, it, so back when I started my kind of online business career, I, I like very seriously considered going to a coding bootcamp and learning how to, how to be a developer. And I, I decided not to, because I thought like at that time I, I overvalued that skill set, and it's a very important skill set. I, I totally understand that, but I undervalued the soft skills, like the ability to communicate, to be empathetic, to sell, you know, by way of, of, of good communication and, and empathy and also leadership. Like I undervalued those skills and overvalue the technical skills. But now I'm seeing a shift where there's so many amazing developers in the market, but there are so few people that, that can do that and have the, I guess the, you know, the relational side of it as well. And I'm finding there are just fewer, fewer people with that type of skill, you know, to be able to put all the pieces together and have those excellent relationships. Like that's the, that's the skill set that I think is actually becoming more and more valuable. I agree with that 100%. It's, uh, and, and this is coming from somebody who actually went through a coding boot camp recently. Yeah. And I, I, it was a very valuable experience. I never did it to become a full-time developer. Okay. I sort of did it to expand my my technical knowledge because I knew that I wanted to work in tech and work with these tech companies and just wanted to be able to speak the language a little better and understand totally. things a little better. Yeah. 
Um, and so for that purpose, it, it served my purpose, but I totally agree with you. I think as we go forward, it's like so much is being replaced by robots and machines and uh, automated right. things that are non-human, you know, and, and right. even, even keeping on these like human developers and coders, you've got these 14 year olds that are going to be better <laughs> coders than I could ever be going through a hundred coding boot camps. So yeah. it's, it's just, I, I think, I think you're so right. Like moving forward, the skills that are going to be really valuable for humans are the human skills that right. robots, you could never train a robot to fully emulate empathy, you know, or fully emulate human emotion and human right. connection. Like you, that robots will never be able to a hundred percent replace humans in that regard. Yeah. Um, so not to get too philosophical, this is a bit of a tangent, but no, I, I, I just, I, I enjoyed that conversation. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, I think it's good. I, I think by way of encouragement, to your listeners that are, are more on the technical side. I mean, I, in my mind, like you, you've got to know how to sell to be effective in business one way or the other, right? Like you've got to be able to sell your product, but I, I'm convinced that it's a skill that we can learn, like that, that we can improve uh, maybe sans some like psychopaths or something like that. But like, that's an honestly very small percentage of the population. But like, I really believe that we can learn and improve empathy. We can learn and improve human interaction and even like learn how to be extroverted when it requires it. Like I, I'm an INTJ on the Myers-Briggs. Like I'm definitely an introverted person, but most people that I interact with don't know that or wouldn't think that it's because I just trained myself on how to be extroverted when it calls for it. So I, I think that, you know, if, if someone has a, a very technical skill set. And they have an excellent product, but they're just lacking in that area. Like one, it's something that they can improve. So like, diligent practice and, and, and effort, right? Just like they, they learned the technical skills in the first place or B, uh, partnering with somebody, right? Like, so, um, you know, bringing on a partner that's complimentary. Like in, in my case, David is so much smarter than I am. He's just a brilliant developer and he is just very well technically versed. And it's awesome that we can, we can work together, um, you know, at Xfusion because we just complement each other so well. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. And that's, that's something that, uh, that, you know, I I've talked about in the past on this podcast too, is building the right team. I think yeah. that is also a very crucial component to success in a startup. Part of it is timing, which is heavily luck. And then the other part is building the right team. For I think sure. those are two huge factors. All right. Yeah. So outside of work, Jim, I know you actually have quite the personal life, um, which, which is shocking for founders since they invest so much time and energy into the business. But um, I know that you're especially passionate about adoption. And that's something I wanted uh, to ask you about. And I'll let you talk about other aspects of your life that you, your hobbies and things that you enjoy too. But um, I, I definitely am curious to hear more about the interest in adoption and where that came from. Gosh, yeah, uh, that's been it's been a journey for us. My my wife and I first kicked off fostering back in 2010, um, and and we fostered for a number of years. We actually had a little girl for three years that we were set to adopt, and at the last minute, they found extended family, and she went to go live with them. So uh, certainly very bittersweet, but also you know just really painful for us. So we kind of took a little break, and then. Uh, started fostering again in Texas just a few years ago, and we actually adopted two little girls. Um, they're they're 13 and 10 now, um, but we adopted them back in November of 17. So we we fostered for um, I guess about 10 months and then adopted them, and that's been a little over three years ago. So that's been just an incredible journey. Um, it's it's I, I think it's been really rewarding and really rich, but also just really challenging as well. And I think it's important, I guess be real about that. And there's actually, I don't know if you've seen it. There's a, a Hollywood movie 
that came out called Instant Family with Mark Wahlberg. Have you heard of this? It you should totally I haven't. Watch it. I haven't. Yeah, I'm gonna check <laughs> it out. It's fantastic, but and it's actually like it. I think the the producer, writer, or whatever, uh, is actually an adoptive adoptive parent, and so like it, it was very real. Like I, I thought it was very very well done. Uh, and of course, Mark, Mark Wahlberg's so cool. It's hard for him to screw things up, but it's like it, it was it was well done. But it really kind of it, it shared the real life challenges of adoption, and and it's it's a challenge because there's this entire period of time that we just don't understand what happened in our kiddos' lives, you know but it's a work in progress every day. And I, I certainly wouldn't trade it and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back and it's been a really rich experience. So uh, yeah, my, my, my family story has been kind of interesting because I, like I said, my wife is 12 years older. And so I have, I have two step kids that are uh, what, 28 and 25. And then I've got a 14 year old uh, biological child. And then uh, our two adoptive girls, um, like I said, are, are 13 and, and 10. Uh, and then we just fostered for the last year, two little ones, a three-year-old little boy and a uh, a three-month-old little baby, and we had them for a year, and they went back to live with their dad, which is totally an awesome ending to the story. And he did an exceptional job and got his kids back, and we still stay in touch with them. So, uh, yeah, we, we decided to kind of close up our our home and just really focus on the kiddos that we have now and kind of go on to the next chapter. But it's been it's been an incredible journey. Wow. Yeah. I I so I personally have always had an interest in adoption, but I never really knew anything about fostering until mm-hmm. uh I, sort of recently I actually heard an interview on a podcast uh with this girl who has been fostering for pretty much her entire adult life. Um yes. and hearing her talk about it and her perspective, I realized like I think most people's perception of fostering is probably not very accurate. Um, Her big point was, you know, as a foster parent, your goal is to get the child back to their family. Like that's the ultimate goal. And it doesn't always happen that way because of the circumstances, but that's your ultimate goal. So as the foster, um, this is just what she said is she, she has, she always has a really good relationship with the biological parents because the ultimate goal, if the ultimate goal is to get the kid back with the parents and, you know, she wants to play a part in helping the parents be able to get to that spot where they can get their kids back and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I just be curious to hear more about like your perspective on fostering or just, I think many people listening probably don't really understand what fostering is. So I'd love for you to share your experience and your perspective on that. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's different ways to go about it, or I should say like foster parents can have different goals and that's fine. Some, some foster parents are, are fostering with the intent to adopt and then others are fostering just with the intent to serve, you know, just to, to, to take care of kiddos. And um, everybody's goal is, is reunification with the parents. That is everybody's goal, whether you intend to adopt or not. And, and if that's not your goal, that really presents a a relationship problem and really causes a lot of conflict with the kiddos. I mean, ultimately that is the successful end that, that we're all looking for. It just doesn't unfortunately always go that way. And, and I would say like roughly nine out of 10 times there is reunification and about 10% of the time it, it goes towards adoption. Um, but I think a lot of people also don't understand that you, you, you don't, it's not like you sign up for adoption and, the, and then like you don't have any say over the, the, the types of kids or ages of kids that you that you receive into your home. Not everybody's well suited to, to t- handle a teenager that's maybe out of control. Like that's a whole different, like people people will say, oh my gosh, you're, you're amazing. You're a foster parent. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like the people that foster teenagers, like at risk teenagers, they're amazing. Like what we did, no, that's not amazing. Like there's no, there's no comparison, you know, having little ones versus having older kids uh, or specifically teenagers. But the point is there's people out there that do really well with that. 
and you can specify what you think, um, what kind of situation you think would be a good fit for your home. But, you know, I, I just, I, I think it's also important to note that like, there's, I think we tend to like compartmentalize our life and think like, oh, I've got my work thing going at, at my startup or, or business and I've got my family thing going. But like, I, I, as I get older, I'm learning that there's so much like cross-pollination, like the the patience that I learned fostering and, and you know, exercising empathy and, and the relationship connection and just the, the weight of responsibility, right? Like it's, that's one thing David and I talk a lot about. Like David is 10 years younger than me and he doesn't have any kiddos yet. And it's like yesterday, I, I told him yesterday or two days ago, I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm a little bit stressed. Or I was saying, I think I was saying like yesterday, I was a little bit stressed. And he's like, why? I was like, oh, I just had a lot to do at work. And then I, had, I, I drove like a bat out of hell to get home to get my daughter to dance class or whatever. It's like, you know, there's, there's responsibilities outside of just work that weigh on me, but, but it's, it's rich. Like, and I find that the, that carries over into my work in really rich and unexpected ways, you know? So I, I, am a big fan of kind of a holistic approach to life. Um, and as far as busyness, I think you kind of hit on that a little bit earlier, but it's like, I, I don't want to be busy. Like, I think a lot of founders wear a badge of honor. Like I work 60 hours a week. Like I really, my goal is to get to the place where I'm working 20 hours a week and then 10 hours a week, not because I don't like to work, but, but, but just because I don't want to be overly busy. I want to make time for people right? Like I want to, I want to have time to make connections. So anytime I find my schedule getting too crowded where I can't, I don't have room for, for just calls to catch up with people. I start pushing more and more off my plate. So like, I just, I really want to have a holistic and balanced life. And I think that's the best way to run the marathon, you know? I love that. And that kind of leads me to, you know, as we close up here, I'd love to hear your number one piece of advice for younger founders, maybe for yourself 10 years ago, or, you know, for somebody that is in an earlier stage and wants to end up where you are today. And you may have already covered your, your number one piece of advice, but what would that be? You know, I think any of the things that I've covered would, would have been good, good advice for my former self. But I think the number one thing, and I haven't talked about this is, is not losing sight of the value of compounding. I think that too many times I've restarted in my career and, and even in my personal life, like moving to different locations constantly and like not building that, that deep network, the deep roots that, that benefit from compounding. And in the, in the business world, like I, I'm grateful for my journey and I'm grateful for the, the wide variety of experience. It really helps me in my business now talk to founders, but I think a better move for, for the previous me and probably for a lot of a lot of your listeners would be staying the course. Like when you look at businesses that are successful, most of them have stayed the course for a long time. And and we lose something every time we we jump ship to pursue something else. And I, I like a lot of variety. I like a lot of novelty. And it's really sometimes difficult for me to just <clears throat> lock in and do the same thing for a long period of time. But I really think I've seen so much loss in like losing the, the benefit of compounding by, by jumping ship that I think it's so important to just stay the course day after day, make steady wins. I think we really, like we, we underestimate how much we can get done in a year and like greatly overestimate how much we can do in a day or week. So I, I used to be really judgmental of myself when I get to the end of the day, I'm like, dang it, Jim, like you just, you could have done so much more today, right? Like, but then I started thinking about it differently. It's like, you know, if I have one really great connective sales call. What if I do nothing else the whole day? And that rarely happens in terms of doing nothing else. But it's like, if I do nothing else, like, is that not a win? Like, what am I measuring against here? Like, what's the hurry? Like, right? Like, it's just, if we're playing the long game, running the marathon versus the sprint, it completely changes your paradigm on the way that you, you tackle your day and your business and just the way that you feel about yourself at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful mindset shift. And I, I think that's a big challenge for many founders, right? Because I, I'd be I'd be willing to wager 
that most founders are probably somewhat impulsive. They're probably not the risk averse people because then they wouldn't be starting companies. So if you're somewhat (laughs) impulsive, somewhat impatient, somewhat, you know, of a competitive person that has big goals and dreams, then it it is really hard to think in terms of the long term. Like you want to get things done and you want to get things done now. Like, like yesterday is when you wanted to get things done. So, um, I think that's a very challenging mindset for founders to have, but I do, I agree with you. I think that's great advice. I think if founders can have that mindset, slow and steady wins the race. You know, there's a reason that yes. that saying has been around forever. Yeah. I just wish I would have listened to that earlier. It's like, it's just, I don't know. Maybe I'm the kind of, kind of guy that takes me like multiple times to learn a lesson. And that's like, that's not a good quality, but like, I wish I would have learned that lesson earlier because I'm really starting to see the fruit of that now. It's like, oh, I don't want to let go of that. It's like, I'm saying this as a reminder to myself too. It's like, there's value in the long game. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's one thing to know that, like you probably knew that for a long time, but it's another thing to put it in a practice. You can know a lot of things, but it's much harder to apply them. Um, all right. So, well, thanks so much, Jim. I know I've taken up so much of your time, so I want to, I want to let you go, but before we do that, I always like to end every episode with a fun little game. It's uh, just totally unrelated to business and it's just for fun. So we have the word association game or we have this or that. Which one would you like to play? Uh, Let's do this or that. Okay, great. So I've got 10 sets of words. I'm going to say A or B. You tell me what you prefer. We'll just go through this really quick. Rapid fire, no need for explanation or anything. Okay, so first one, plane or train? Oh, definitely plane. Hot or cold? Cold. Night or day? Day. Beach or mountain? Ooh, beach. Coffee or tea? Uh, coffee. Freedom or stability? <laughs> uh, we're gonna have to go with freedom. Yeah. Books or podcasts? Uh, podcast. Bootstrap or fundraise? Bootstrap, definitely. Past or future? Hmm, future. Work or play? <laughs> There's gotta be a middle option. Uh, man, let's go with play. Okay, awesome. Congrats. You've completed the this or that game. Thank uh you. <laughs> you feel accomplished? Yes, my day is good now. Yes. <laughs> now you can take the rest of the day off, go play with your kiddos, do some fun things. That's right. Um all right. So Jim, tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally or where they can learn more about Xfusion. Yeah, best place is just our website. It's xfusion, it's X-F-U-S-I-O-N dot I-O. And my email is jim at xfusion dot I-O. Uh, and I love connecting with people. Like I, I don't, I would love to just chat with people about their businesses. No, no pressure from me. I just love making a connection. So if anybody wants to reach out and say hello, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Are you on LinkedIn? On LinkedIn? Yeah, I am. As, That's another good well, place. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks so much, Jim, for coming on here. Thanks. I really appreciate your time. I think this was such a valuable conversation. Um, I hope all the listeners enjoyed that. Again, please don't hesitate to reach out to Jim. If you didn't get the vibe of that from this episode, he really enjoys talking to people. He's a really nice guy. So definitely reach out, check out xfusion.io and we will be back again with another episode of Startup Happy Hour. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Startup Happy Hour, sponsored by Content Allies. If something we said today resonated with you, please share our episode on social media and sign up for our email list at startuphappyhourpodcast.com. 
Happy hour doesn't have to end just because this episode is over. Continue the conversation with us at startuphappyhourpodcast.com or on Instagram at startuphappyhour.